chapter 1. We take up a very important point this morning. Of course, there are no unimportant portions of God's Word, but very often uh, it is easy for us to read passages, perhaps that we're quite familiar with as far as reading goes, but perhaps sometimes we haven't uh, dropped anchor at that portion of Scripture and started thinking about how it connects to the rest of Scripture. And I hope this morning we'll see a little bit of that connection in other places because especially throughout the epistle to the Hebrews, there's great emphasis on the covenants of God and the time in which the glorious purpose of God unfolds. So we'll be talking about that, I pray, with some clarity today. Now that um, I have let you get still and quiet, would you please stand again? At least no one will fall asleep in the first half of our service. We'll see how the rest goes. Oh, brethren, we are here in the presence of God. And may our hearts and minds be united as one. As we read the Holy Word of God, we will all read together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. Let us begin. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Amen. Please be seated. We normally continue standing for prayer, but we have a few here today that I know find that a difficulty. So I will pray for us. Righteous and Holy Father, Once again, I bless thy name. Blessed be the Most High. We praise thee, O Lord, for thou art worthy. Heaven shouts. Heaven thunders with holy, 
Holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who wert and art and evermore shalt be. We bow in thy presence. We sit in thy presence. We stand in thy presence and we bless thee as thou dost come in our midst today. We thank thee that thou dost fill every regenerate soul with thy spirit and that every place there's a building that has regenerate people gathering in thy name, that the true temple is not the building, but the very people of God filled with that mighty life-giving, life-creating power of the Holy Spirit. Come and renew the new creature, the new man in every one of thy people today. May our hearts catch fire in love of Christ. May we see him and see him in his beauty and glory in these pages, in these words. Help us, O God. We want Christ. Those that are born of thy spirit want Christ. And we will have him. Help us to pray here together with expectation that our Christ, he that is found in the midst of the candlesticks, is here with us today. How I praise thee, O Christ. How I welcome thee, O Christ. And I pray that every true heart, every born-again heart, rejoices at the thought of thy presence, rejoices and gives thanks that thou hast given us thy Holy Spirit, that mighty power that raised thee from the dead, that raised us from the death of our sin into the life of Christ and made us citizens of thy kingdom. Blessed be thy holy name. Make new creatures today, O God, please. I pray that knowing that there are many in our midst who are lost, they do not know thee, they have never sought thee, or perhaps some of them have bought some kind of weak version of American religion and makes them think they're okay with thee when they have no burning desire for thee, no burning desire for holiness, no burning desire to know and walk in thy word. Oh, come to them. Come to them. Breathe life into their souls. Raise them from their, their religious coffins, O oh God, into the light and grace of Christ Jesus. Oh, do it. Fill this place with the joy of the Holy Spirit this morning. Father, thou knowest us. Thou knowest that there are hungry souls here this morning, and they want thee, and they want thee to feed them. I cannot do it, but thy spirit can. Oh, be generous with thy spirit to us, Encourage, build up, give joy to thy people. Give light that they may see thee more clearly and love thee more heartily. And once again, I plead for those who do not know thee. Lord, move in their hearts. Help them to take all of their objections, all of their reasons for not coming to thee and cast them from them that they might come and believe unto everlasting life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in thy blessed name. Lord, thou told us in this book, if we pray in thy name, thou hearest us. I'm grateful that thou hast heard us. May we all look up to thee, expecting thy blessing. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Brethren, we have considered the first portion of this verse. In it, we read the words, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. We spent several weeks, in fact, six, considering the doctrine of God. Not nearly enough, but enough for us in what we're doing. This book begins with God, and God is the primary character all the way through this 13 chapters. Not only that, Christ the Son goes from chapter to chapter, page to page, and we see the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is a thoroughly Trinitarian book. It is full of our God, and that being the case, being inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, everyone indwelt by the Holy Spirit ought to feed here and rejoice in seeing the God, the object of their worship set before them. We're here to worship, not to get a lecture. We are here to, to set before you and for you to grasp the living words of God so that those who have been born of God's Spirit would be built up, so that they would seek holiness, that they would look for every way in their lives in which they can manifest and glorify thy name. It's not just something you do on Sundays. If it is, you're in a spiritual coffin. It is something that we desperately need. We need Jesus. We need the Lord. We need his strength. We need his encouragements. We need his rebukes and his corrections. We need everything that in his love he will send our way that will make us more like him. Not trying to be a name dropper here and I will not name the person who said this to me. But as I was sharing some concerns with him, he said, Brother, sometimes when the Lord is using you or teaching you the most, it feels like he's killing you. And I have come to be a living commentary on that statement. I believe it. If you're just smooth cruising all the time, you do need to ask the Lord what gear you're in. You need to, uh, you need to ask what vehicle you're in we want to be in Christ walking with Christ we want to know him and this book aims to set him before us in such ways that when we face the darkest times of our lives we will have the greatest light from heaven Christ Jesus our great high priest our great high priest So as we return, this beautiful passage to this beautiful passage, we will be considering verse 1 and what we refer to as verse 2a. That means the first part of the verse. 2a, you'll see that there on your 
outlines, God willing. Now notice, our first thought is our one major thought today. We don't have other major headings as such. Everything that we're going to consider today is going to take up this one thought. God has spoken in two ages or eras. God has spoken in two ages or eras. The sacred text says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The human author of Hebrews was obviously a gifted, powerful preacher. He possessed a profound knowledge of Scripture. As we go through the letter to the Hebrews, we will see him all through this extraordinary letter appealing to the Word of God and applying it to the souls of those who are reading or hearing. Now, He not only had a profound knowledge of Scripture, he was a master of persuasive language skills. When we read uh, the beauty of the King James Version, there's kind of a a homogeneity to it. And everybody kind of sounds like an Englishman. But those who read the original languages say that this man was an artist in the way that he's constructed the book. He was a man who understood persuasion and was using words to persuade his readers. And what was he trying to persuade them of? Well, the very thing that we're starting with, that that God has spoken and he spoke at one time and he spoke at another. And we're going to look at those two times, those two ages. This, this is beautiful. So, <clears throat> we, could, we could call the human author an artist in the use of persuasive words. Not in some kind of slick way in taking advantage or deceiving someone but taking the power of right words and going for people's hearts. Now, Hebrews does not start like a letter. No mention of the author, no mention of his audience, no words of greeting. Instead, the author begins with this magnificent sentence, which sounds like a sermon. Listen again. No greetings, just God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days 
spoken unto us by His Son. What a way to begin a letter. I don't imagine anyone here has ever written a letter that started like that. It's unique. It's different. And for that reason, the first four verses of this letter are sometimes referred to as the exordium. That is, an introductory part of a lecture or a sermon or a writing. Something that's more formal than we think of when we're writing a letter, unless it's a business letter. But it is regularly referred to as the exordium of Hebrews because it comes on so strong and so powerful and with such beauty. Anybody that can read the words and think about what's being said there should be moved. Moved. God speaks. We need to hear. So, we may correctly identify uh, this particular writing as a sermon because the author closes his letter with these words. I beseech you, brethren, suffer or bear with, bear with the word of exhortation. That's what he calls what he's just written. The word of exhortation, urging people on, urging believers on, urging believers to stay with Christ, to keep the faith as they face coming persecution. Stay with Christ. That's the purpose. And then he follows those words, the word of exhortation with, for I've written a letter unto you in few words. That's my man, 13 chapters. That's, that's a few words. So, I know some of you believe that my favorite verse in the Bible is that as Paul was along preaching, pretty close. So he said, I beseech you, suffer the word of exhortation, for I've written a letter to you in few words. So we know it's personal on one hand. It's not just a writing. It's not just sermonic. But it's personal expression. He's preaching to them off the page. If you want to put it that way. So Hebrews is a letter in the form of a sermon. And that sermon begins by distinguishing a past age and a present age. The Holy Spirit reveals and contrasts two distinct ages. Now, when we speak of these two ages, we are speaking of two distinct periods of human history. Each of those ages were the revelation of God's eternal purpose. So let us remember what revelation, the word revelation, not the book called revelation. Let us remember what revelation means. Uh, 
In our last time together, we read Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who defined it as, quote, the act by which God communicates to human beings. Are you listening? (laughs) The act. Who does that act? God. It's God's act of communicating to human beings. The truth concerning himself. He reveals himself. The drawing back of the veil. Oh, beings. The truth concerning himself. His nature. His works, will, or purposes. And it also includes the unveiling of all of this. He lets us see who he is and what he's doing. That should thrill us. That should thrill us. God doesn't have to reveal himself to us. There's no one that can force him to do so. He does so because he loves his people. He reveals himself. And that is the idea of drawing back a veil, drawing back a curtain so they can see what's there. So, the Spirit-breathed words of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2a then, draw back the curtain of two ages with the phrases in time past and in these last days. Let's hear them again. In time past. And in these last days, there are four contrasts in this wonderful portion of Scripture. We will look at them more closely as we work through. So, two ages, past and present. He moves from the past revelation of the prophets to the present revelation of the Son, Jesus Christ. And this theme of two contrasting ages runs throughout this letter. And it is central to the Holy Spirit's message. If you were thinking, why are we talking about this? Because it lies at the heart of the message of the whole book. The contrast between God's former or past revelation and the present revelation. They're not the same. They're connected. One is built upon the other. But with each of God's covenants, there's greater revelation, greater drawing back of the curtain to see more and more. the two contrasting ages represent the old and the new covenants. The Lord isn't simply talking about history. These are actually very powerful theological statements. This book is full of theology, glorious, wonderful, God-revealing 
theology. <clears throat> now, these contrasting ages as the Old and New Covenants will appear not only throughout, but the, as the letter progresses, you will actually hear the language. The first covenant, meaning the old covenant. <clears throat> the new covenant. And, and we see the unfolding revelation of God's mind. Brethren, do you understand? We're, God has stooped down and we're seeing something from his eternal, infinite, all-knowing mind. He's talking to us. You don't pick up his Bible and just think, oh, well, nice doorstop. This is God's word. This is not God's suggestion. This is not God's opinion. This is not God's democratic book. It is the king of heaven speaking to us. What a gift. What a blessing. In times past refers to the Old Covenant age, which lasted for several thousand years. Some believe that in time past begins in Genesis 3.15, in which God announces the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, and that it ends in Malachi. <clears throat> Others, such as John Owen, believe that it begins in Moses... And ends in Malachi. Either way. We're not here for the argument on that. <clears throat> Either way. God's revelation came in sundry. That is various times. And in diverse. That is different ways. Various times in different ways. The Greek under the word in time past. Actually means in many parts. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Many parts. But they actually all work together as they move toward the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, God's revelation was communicated in stories. Sometimes we refer to stories as narrative. But... God gave us stories. <clears throat> he gave us prophecy, commandments, covenants, prayers, poetry, psalms or songs, proverbs, love songs, Song of Solomon, dreams, visions, apocalyptic literature and miracles. And we could go on. Do you understand how many different way God, ways God in his mercy speaks to us? Again, it's his love. It could have just been all one rule book, right? Rule one, and then we go all the way through and rule 567,000. It could be that. He didn't do that. He paints pictures for us. Poetry. He speaks love language to us. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Oh, Song of Solomon is just 
passionate. It's extraordinary. The Jews always saw it as uh, the Father's love, Yahweh's love, Jehovah's love for Israel. Christians see it as Christ's love for his church. Why is there this powerful, passionate love poem in the middle of the Old Testament? Because God is a God of love. And our lives are to manifest love, mental love, physical love. God's library is extraordinary. 66 Holy Ghost inspired books that never change, they never get altered. And while they may be banned, God's word will be in this planet until Christ returns. But you better be filling your mind with it now. You might lose your local copy in the not too distant future. And for centuries, centuries, brethren, God spoke in these ways to his people. All these ways and more. He spoke to Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He spoke to Sarah. He spoke to Moses and Joshua. God. Now, for those of you that were not with us and haven't heard the previous messages, just those six, six messages on God, the Trinity, the extraordinary God in the Bible. He's not your buddy. He's your creator. He's your savior. He is your Lord. He's not somebody who's just going, oh, well, I wish they'd let me do something today. Grandpa waiting for his grandchildren to kind of do something good. Mm -mm. God, as we've seen, is awesome. Overwhelming. I don't know any better word than mind-blowing. Our mind can't handle it. So for that God to stoop down and give us love letters, <laughs> to stoop down and give us commandments, why does he give us all those commandments? Because we're so lost and ignorant as to what righteousness is. That's why. And when you see the practice of so many of the modern modern denominations, churches, etc., etc., they are barely distinguishable from the world, and that's the way they want it. They don't want to be different. They want everybody to think they're cool, and therefore Jesus is cool. That Jesus will not save one soul. Only the Holy Son of God saves sinners. In time past, God spoke. It was real revelation. This is from, from Genesis to Malachi. It's the word of God, even though it contains words from demons. Words of demons are in here. Lies are in here. Satan's in here. The prophets are in here. But it's all God's word. In other words, 
when there's a lie, he's showing us why and what happens when people do this. Why is Satan in the book? Why is the serpent in the garden? Because God wants you to know exactly why you are a sinner. Why do you do those things that you know you shouldn't do? And you look back over your life and you go, why did I keep doing that? Then you just need to read Genesis 3 and you will find out why. That's why God has every kind of literature in there to speak to people. Now, in contrast to the past revelation... What we have is the phrase, in these last days. Now listen carefully. In these last days. It doesn't say, in the coming last days. And when was this written? 2,000 years ago. The last days are not the few days or weeks before Jesus returns. The church of Jesus Christ has been in the last days for two millennia. In these last days, it refers to the new covenant age. Now that's crucial. <laughs> You say, you say that a lot. Well, it's the word of God for one thing. But number two, it's genuinely crucial. What does it mean? What am I driving at? Why am I pushing this point? It's because to those that were under the old revelation, they had prophecies and promises from God. The people in the new covenant have them. Are you with me? The prophecies are not all about black helicopters and antichrist. The old covenant or the first covenant had prophets that pointed to an extraordinary day when Messiah would come. We're in that day. We've been in that day for 2000 years. Now, I hope that sets you thinking <clears throat> because it also is key to understanding the rest of the book. The author of this book, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to show those that are turning back to the first revelation of God, the Old Covenant, that everything about Christ, the new covenant, and the age in which we live is better than that. Not just better, but superior, absolutely superior. And that's why there you see that word better applied to Jesus and the covenants all the way through the book. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. And that's what you need to know 
in the face of trouble, in the face of perilous times, in the face of just trouble in your home, and in the face of the powers of darkness moving against God's people, you need to know Christ is better. You will not find a refuge in the old covenant. It's gone. It went in to the tomb with Jesus, but it didn't come out. He did. So, in these last days, here are very uh, important words. That era of spirit-inspired revelation begins with John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye! Now, come on. If somebody were standing down on Pensacola Beach, standing out in the water and crying out to everybody on the beach in their nakedness and crying out to them saying, repent of your sins, we'd all see if we could find another place to go at that point, right? Who wants to hear someone saying, You need to repent. You need to change your mind about the way you're living. You need to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. They'd have him pulled out of that water and in a cell mighty quickly. We would be going, I don't like people like that. They give us a bad name. Well, this is what John was. John was crying out to people. Why? Because he was announcing Messiah. And he knew that a massive change was coming. Oh, it's true. He got confused at one point. Are you really the guy? Because the Jewish notion of Messiah was this conquering king. Jesus is telling everybody to love their enemies. And he's healing sick bodies. And he's talking about holiness. He's talking about the kingdom. He talks about love. It's like this doesn't sound like the Messiah to us. All those books that we bought about the coming of Messiah. That's not the way he painted the picture. Second coming is probably going to be a real shock for most of us as well. Friends, this is the revelation of God. John's standing in the water and saying, He's coming! He's so glorious! I can't even tie his shoes. He stood there saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. And that's a stunning statement, by the way. Heaven, the kingdom of heaven, it's here. At hand means it's right here. What were they waiting for? The king. And as soon as the king appeared, he began to speak and preach and teach about the kingdom. John the Baptist is the forerunner. John the Baptist is the one who's calling out to the people who were expecting Messiah. And he's saying the kingdom's here. The kingdom is drawn near to us. 
So repent. Children, the word repent means to change your mind. Well, brethren, let me say very gently, when you bring your children to talk to me about being converted, when they can't tell me what repentance is, they need to back up. You need to teach them some more. The call of the gospel is to repent of sin and believe the gospel. Repent ye. He's telling people that, that he knows. He's telling, the, he's telling the religious leaders. How about that? Seems like we need someone to do that in our day. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He's announcing, listen carefully, a new age. Now, not the new age that's out there. That's just Eastern religion repackaged. But where the true new age we're the second age. We're the new covenant. And this is the language. That age, which in which age we live, will come to its predestinated end when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Jesus is glorious, wondrously glorious. Now, who's the famous person you want to know? <laughs> or do you want to know Jesus? We've become a nation of people, celebrity worshipers. Oh, I wish I knew them. No, you don't. You sure don't. Before him shall be gathered all nations. Are we getting the picture? Every nation will be gathered before the living Christ as he sits on his throne. There will be no atheists in that moment. And they won't be arguing about what science has proven. They won't. They'll be seeing the one who made them in his glory. No curtain. That's revelation. He'll be gathered before him, shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divided his sheep from the goats. And these, the goats, shall go away into everlasting punishment. but the righteous, the sheep, into life eternal. There are no other options. And there'll be no voting. This will not be a democratic gathering. There will be one authority, the king. And everyone will stand before him 
and he will welcome them into eternity or he will cast the unbelievers away from him into everlasting burnings. This is the revelation of God. It's not the evening news. This is the revelation of God and it's the revelation of the new covenant. It begins in John the Baptist. It ends in the day of judgment. Are you ready for that day? Children, are you ready for that day? Young people, are you ready for that day? Adults, are you ready? So the revelation in time past, the old covenant, and the revelation in these last days, the new covenant, are set before us in this simple text. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past under the fathers by the prophets, it was the revelation of what would come. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. It's come to pass. Now, to whom did God speak in time past? Well, the text is clear. Unto the fathers. That phrase, fathers, uh, or unto the fathers, would surely apply to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But the New Testament often uses the term fathers to apply to all the people under the old covenant. That's more likely what's being presented here. In other words, God made his revelation available to the fathers, to all the people of Israel. That is remarkable. Paul, and and they were stiff-necked from the beginning. But he told them. (laughs) He said, y'all have been stiff-necked from the very beginning. Oh, may not say that to anybody in here. Stiff-necked is a hard condition to cure. Paul uses this term in speaking of the wilderness generation. Listen carefully. I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Hmm, There it is. It's likely the way that the author to the Hebrews is using it. All of them. So, to whom? Israel. Israel and Judah. By whom did God speak in time past? The text is plain once again. God spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, last time we learned what a prophet was. It's a person who speaks to men from God. Someone who speaks to men from God. So a prophet is a mediator, a go-between, and a go-between God and 
other human beings. We should be familiar with the major and the minor prophets of the old covenant age, but the text probably refers to everyone that God used to speak to his people. There were more prophets than simply the writing prophets. There are prophets and prophetesses mentioned in the the old covenant. Most likely what the author to the Hebrews is pointing to is any and everyone that God used to speak to his people. That was his love to them. Most of them rejected it. We're not talking about the Assyrians. We're not talking about the Egyptians. We're talking about those, that glorious nation that he made out of Abraham, the former pagan. So <clears throat> the people of the old covenant, sometimes, as I said earlier, and you'll hear it from time to time, it's used right here in the book of Hebrews, is sometimes called the first covenant, received the end times past revelations that God delivered by his servants. These were all those that God raised up to bring revelation, to reveal himself, to reveal his purpose, to reveal why they existed as a nation, what he intended to do and why he intended to do it. And you know, he says, love me. I have loved you. He said, I've set you apart from every other nation, every other people. Him that loves me and keeps my commandment. Well, if you read the Old Testament, you find out they didn't do that well. The ten tribes in the north were carried out of the land. Two terrible waves of captivity. All in Judah dragged out of the promised land. Why? Because they didn't stay with God's revelation. They didn't believe his word and obey it. That begins to make this beautiful passage very sober. God spoke and now he spake by his son. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the question, of course, is to whom did God speak in the, in the last days? Who is that? And now when um, ah, we should be on the heading right now, to whom has God spoken in these last days? In these last days. The contrast with in time past is in these last days. The past, the present. The human author of Hebrews is saying to the Jewish and possibly Gentile believers in his day that they were all participants in the last day. That puts us in the realm of, there's a big word, eschatology. Eschatology. And some of you have heard that just because so many books about eschatology have been written in the last 30, 40 years. And you know that eschatology means last things. We're in the realm of eschatology when we say in these last days. 
Now, I want us to think about this for a few minutes. I don't want this to get too technical. I'll do my best for it not to. But eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which is in our text for last. And in systematic theology, eschatology usually means the last things. And there are four of them. Four last things. The second coming of Christ, day of judgment, heaven, hell. And normally, if you take uh, your average uh, eschatology uh, course in, in seminary, you're going to be looking at those things. Second coming of Christ, uh, day of judgment, heaven and hell. However, let me, let me try to press you into thinking a little broader. Considering eschatology at the very end of biblical studies can distort our understanding of important passages and doctrines in the scriptures. Considering then that these other passages that reveal that we're in the last day, or consider then these passages. <clears throat> Listen to Hebrews 9, 26. For then must he, Jesus, often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Peter understood that he was in that time when Messiah had come. And so those were the last days. Now, that was 2,000 years ago. So we've been in the last days a long time. But the scripture makes that obvious to those who will read it carefully in its context. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, glorious passage that many of us know and revere. Peter proclaimed, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out, when? In the last days. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. All right, Paul's, Paul is talking about the scriptures. He says, it's Joel. I'm, I'm preaching from Joel. Chapter 2, verse 28 he takes that passage out of the old revelation and he brings it up and says, it's for the last days and that's what's happening on this day. At this time, this is the last time because Messiah came and established the kingdom. Well, where is it? It looks like he was a miserable failure. Look at him up there on the cross. Where's his army? Where's his horses? Where are the swords? He's dying. He's dead. And then he rose again. The king conquered by his death and resurrection. And he established the spiritual kingdom over which he presently rules. Everybody born of God's spirit doesn't just become a member of the church. By the very nature of the spirit of God dwelling within you, you're in the kingdom 
And you're to live as a kingdom citizen. Now. And we're moving toward that consummation. So if this is true, eschatology is something that's a lot broader. A whole lot broader than the way it's normally given to us in many traditions. It's amazing. Peter said in his first letter, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus again. But was manifest in these last times. In these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Peter understood that he was in the last days. Do you and I? You're in the last days, and they will end. But they are last in God's outworking of his purpose. We are last times people. It's not just something off in the future. You're in it. You are living in God's kingdom if you were born of God's spirit. Listen to John who says the same thing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. The apostles got it. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists. 2,000 years ago, many Antichrist. I mean, we've had a few generations that almost worship the Antichrist because they spend all their time trying to figure out who he is. It is the last time, as we have heard, that Antichrist shall come even now. There are many Antichrists whereby we know it is the last time. So, then let me try to put eschatology to you in kind of a simple way. I hope I don't lose you. Consider it like this. Two very simple sentences. Eschatology is first things begin with last things in view. That's pretty simple. First things in this world begin with last things in view. And last things shape first things. So there's something working together. First things have future things, last things in view. Last things fashion and form and shape the first things. Let me explain it. Well, just, you, you want to build a house. In order to move into that house, you have a goal. I want to build a house and I want to live in that house. Okay, that's the, that's the goal. Now, comes the hard part, you got to have a plan, right? I want to get married. Uh, we need a plan. <clears throat> move off marriage, get back to the house. All right? Now, if I want that house, if I want the goal, if I want to move into that house, well, I've got to have a plan, 
And then I've got to have the materials. Oh, wait a minute. Got to have the money for that. So I've got to have the money for the materials. And then I've got to have somebody build it. Maybe I can build it. Maybe I can get Jared to come and help me. You know, but I mean, I've got to get it built or I will not get in there. Right. It's just obvious. We live with this kind of thinking all the time. But very often we don't we don't think about it in terms of, of scripture. So there's the goal. I want that goal. All right. I've I've got the blueprint now. We've got that drawn out. We paid the guy for the blueprint. Oh, we drew it ourselves. We saved a little money. However, you want to make the plan move. But as it begins to move along, then you've got to do all of the things that are necessary to get that house built, right? Or there's no house. Your goal isn't going to happen. You can sit and go, oh, it's a nice goal. Oh, I can't wait to be in my house. Well, you don't even have the blueprint yet. So you see, first things, got a plan. Begin with last things in view. Then you have to unfold the plan to get there. All right? Now, what is the goal? The goal is to live in a house, a particular kind of house. Maybe you want a brick one. Maybe you want it with siding. Maybe you want a wood, a log cabin. It doesn't matter what it is. But you've got this goal in mind. The goal demands certain plans on your part and things on your part. The two work together. First things begin with last things in view. Last thing, that last thing <laughs> fashions what's going to happen. It's going to impact. It's going to shape first things. Got to get the hammer. Got to get the nails. No, I want, I want one of those hammers that's battery driven. Whatever. But you got to have it. Now, if you're with me, when a plan begins to unfold, it has a goal for which it aims in view. And the goal in view is clearly is the deciding factor in steps that you take to reach it. All right. How will I get there? I must do this. So let's apply. Before the foundation of the world, the living God had a plan. He purposed to save his people from their sins. First things always have last things in view. God says, I'm going to save some sinners. Now, how will we do that? Paul tells us, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's eternally loved people are to be made like Christ. That's the goal. Glory to God. I won't have to deal with me anymore. But be more, I will be like Christ. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That will be the goal realized. That will be the goal realized. How do we get there? You see, the plan has to keep that goal in view. That's exactly what God did, though he did it perfectly and brilliantly and didn't have to hire anybody to help him out. Now, 
God therefore purposed before creation to save an innumerable host of fallen human beings and to make them like Christ Jesus. Now let us think of this in the following ways. First things. Okay, what are the first things here? Creation. When God purposed to save his people from their sins, there was no creation. There wasn't a people. But he said, let there be light. Do you realize let there be light was an eschatological saying? Because it had the salvation of his people in view. It wasn't just, I'm going to make a nice pretty place. No. He created a place in which to work out his eternal purpose. And he did it. And along the way, he revealed things all the way through. He would make a covenant with Abraham and make a promise. And those promises would slowly begin to happen. And then he would make a promise that, that, that was, call, I mean, he would, give, he would give a covenant that was called the Mosaic Covenant. And we could go through all of that. But this is the point. There was an unfolding of what God intended to do. He was going to save his people from their sins. So creation itself and the unfolding of history is all moving toward that. All of it. And, of course, from the view of the goal, certain things had to happen. Jesus Christ, in God's eternal purpose, had to die on Calvary's cross to save us. That's why he made Adam and Eve. Every single aspect of what you call history is the outworking of God's eternal purpose as we move toward the goal. What has that got to do with Hebrews? When the author wrote this, it was the last days. These last days. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus has ascended up into glory, promising that he would return. And when he returns, the final of the final, then everything about the goal will have been achieved, perfectly accomplished to his everlasting glory. Come in. Oh, every one of you sheep, I spilled my blood on Calvary's cross for you. You believed me. You repented of your sins. Enter. Goal accomplished. And everything that God purposed and planned in it and outworked happened and was successful. That's why if you ignore that revelation... On that day, you will be cast away from God in eternal judgment. Because God had an old revelation that gave way to the new revelation of Jesus Christ. First things, creation. Last things. God eternally loved people made like Christ. It's all in view. It's all being unfolded. 
It's never, listen, listen, if you're a Christian, if you were truly born of God's spirit, there is never anything as just another day for you. It's one step closer to the goal accomplished. The goal for the uh, revelation that we have in these last days. Just come to Christ. If you're without Christ this morning, come to him because you don't know when that last day is coming. The day is unfolding. Oh, my friends, let me give you the last thought for today. By whom did God speak in these last days? We know who did in the first, right? The prophets. And that's what the Jews wanted to go back to. That's why this letter is written. To bring them to stay in the better revelation. As a reminder, the first four verses in the English text are one long Greek sentence. One, the text says that God spake, Old Covenant, and God hath spoken. Both clauses bear the same message. God speaks, God speaks. But the heart, uh, the very heart of this elegant and carefully crafted sentence is only one independent clause. Now, sorry to drag in a little grammar, but sometimes it's very important. And it is. This is the only complete sentence in that huge sentence. It's the only independent clause. It can stand by itself. What is it? What's the beating heart of this thing? God has spoken by his son. That's it. That's the whole message of those four verses. God has spoken by his son. That raises four questions and you and I have to answer them. Number one, do we hear God's revelation? Do we hear Jesus? Jesus said, come unto me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. If you turn your back on that today, you are turning away from the very revelation of God and the very life in eternity that will be filled with joy and glory and holiness and purity. No tears there. No sickness there. No war there. No drag queen hour. Do you hear the word of God? Do you hear Jesus speaking? Remember, it was read this very morning. Thank you for reading that so well, brother. Matthew 17. God manifests on top of the mountain. Jesus is there. And he said, this is my son. What did he say? Hear him. Do you? He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is that loveth me. He said that. Do you believe that? Oh, we could go on for a long time. But my question for me and for you is always, are you hearing that Jesus has spoken to us in this day? We're in the day of Jesus. We're in the day of grace. We are in the day of the gospel. Will you turn your back on that? Oh, come to Christ. 
come to Christ. If you understood when he split the sky, it will be too late for you. When he comes and he sits on his throne, there won't be any pleas. There won't be, wait, 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 no, not now. I was going to believe this. I had something important to do. Not going to work. There will be none of it. You will be in the presence of the God who revealed himself through his son who died on Calvary's cross and rose again to save sinners just like us. Oh, my brethren, do we hear God? Do we understand God? Do we believe God? And do we apply it to our lives? If you're lost, here's the application you need. Repent of your sins and believe on the crucified and resurrected God-man. For the rest of us, if the Lord has saved us, it's just getting up day by day and listening to him, going to his word, listening to a sermon, reading a good book, learning how to walk with Jesus and with his people. The human author of Hebrews expected his readers to respond to his sermon. And I'm urging you, read this and respond. These are the last days, and they have been. But the day will come when it's over. So in our next sermon, we will consider the seven glorious things that follow and that describe Christ. Why does he go to such lengths to say all these things about Jesus after he said, well, I spoke by my prophets. That's all he says. And then he says, now I speak by my son. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven things that show forth the glory, the beauty, and the reason that Paul or the author piles up for us to hear his son. May God grant us another Lord's day. Amen. My Father in heaven, we need thee every day. Every day. What can we do without thee? Lord Jesus, thou didst say it. Thou didst say it. Without me, you can do nothing. I know it. Oh, Lord, may we all learn the lesson so that we cast ourselves completely upon thee. Thank you for thy people. Bless them. And I pray, O oh righteous Father, for those who don't know thee, Would they go through the closets of their heart and pack up all the reasons that they will not come to Christ and burn them up and run to Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Please stand with me.
Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That's where the joy and the peace is. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's go in the name of Jesus.